Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Larry Klein is a legendary record producer, musician, and songwriter. He's worked as a bassist or a songwriter with a diverse number of artists, including Don Henley, Lindsey Buckingham, Luciana Souza, Bob Dylan, and Warren Zevon. And as a producer, he's worked with Joni Mitchell, Madeline Peru, Melody Gardot, Tracy Chapman, and Herbie Hancock, just to name a few. In fact, it was Madeline Peru that was the seed for this interview. So it's a great pleasure to welcome Larry Klein. Larry Klein, thank you so much for being with us. Ah, happy to be here. So how do you define your job as a record producer? That's a good question because it's one of those jobs that very few people understand to any degree. And and it's something that because I've done it now, I guess going on about 30 years or something, I've thought about a lot, but one of the things that that I love most about the job and that makes it a hard job to describe is is that it is different every time that I do it, depending on the parameters, depending on the artists that I'm working with, their strengths and weaknesses, what they need, what they don't need. And, you know, basically my job is to assess what the burning light is inside them, you know, that makes them special and makes them someone that you want to listen to, watch or both and take that thing and amplify it, you know, sort of focus in on what is their special individuality. And then if they need help shape that and help amplify and focus it so that so that it kind of takes over the picture as opposed to being maybe off in one corner of the picture while, you know, other things that they're interested in or trying to do or, or things that are incidental to what, what they're the central focus of what they do is, you know, and, and take over. So, so it, it ranges all the way from taking someone who, who knows very little about a lot of things, you know, who who is making a record and there's something, there's something compelling about them, but they have no idea what they want to do. And in that case, sort of performing the role of the artur and creating a landscape that is comfortable for them to live in, putting them inside this landscape, it ranges all the way from that to to the other extreme where where you have someone who is incredibly self-sufficient and strong and has more ideas than they can even sort through and helping them kind of discard some of their ideas and pursue the ones that are most central and important. So how do you do the process of getting comfortable with the artist? What do you do to make them feel comfortable with you and you feel comfortable with them? The first thing I do is when I meet an artist, which I do right away after, you know, if somehow something comes together where there is a proposal of me working with someone and and I've, it seems attractive to me, it seems inspiring and exciting and compelling to me to, to work with them and same on their end, then the most important thing for me to do is to meet them or at least have a have a lengthy phone call with them. And, and from my end, the most important thing for me to assess is, is, is whether it feels like a good match and whether we're going to, you know, be somewhat in concurrence regarding what is good and what is not good and, and what we're kind of seeking and what we're looking to do. And I guess, probably the most important thing for me is, is seeing if they're curious or not, you know, that's the, that's really the linchpin factor. You know, if they're, if the, if I get the feeling that they are basically just looking for someone to execute a record and, and then, then usually 
that's a good hint that it's not going to be something that I want to do. So if there's a spirit of curiosity about them, then I, I know that we're, we're halfway there. And then, and then, and then for me, the, the most important thing to establish with them, and, and this goes also for any other musicians who are working on a project is getting rid of the, the hierarchical aspect of, of title and, and who is doing what and, and just, and, and really trying as much as I can with, with every thing that I say and do pretty much to establish an, an ethos of, of cooperative, uh, collaboration, you know, where, where we're, we're just, we're trying to figure out how to make something great. And so that, that's one of the most important things for me to set up. And it's something that I think about all the time when I'm working with someone. I mean, from the first, from, from the first step into the studio or the first sentence that we exchange in the morning, I'm trying to promote the atmosphere of, uh, you know, that we're doing something that we love and have fun doing and that we're, we're, we're going to just try and do something great that day, you know? And that comes down to all sorts of various types of uh, strategies and minutia. What would be one of those strategies? Oh God, I, you know, it, there's a million different things that I that I do when I, you know, in thinking about this, in in, in how this informs the way that I work. Um, for instance, if things aren't working well on a certain track that we're working on, and and I have a room full of musicians and an artist that I'm dealing with, oftentimes instead of speaking over the talk back from the control room, I'll, I'll just take a few minutes and, and meander around the room, uh, you know, the tracking room and, and, and just speak individually to, to each player and in a very kind of somewhat casual manner and, and try and reset the parameters of what we're doing, but not in a way that connotes, you know, the producer, booming in over the headphones with their directions and their uh, pronouncements. You know, I, th I think that this differs from some producers. You know, I, I know that there are some producers who consider it to be an essential part of how you work with a, a group of players to, to tell them what to do. And, and I'm from the opposite camp where I, even if I am essentially telling them what to do, I don't want it to feel like that to them. So I'll, I'll sort of say things that, that nudge them in the right direction and then see, see if they find their way to what I'm thinking of. And sometimes they find their way to what I'm thinking of, or sometimes they'll find their way to something even better than what I was thinking of because I, I'm very fortunate in that I, I'm able to surround myself with some of the best musicians in the world and, and guys who also are men and women who, who also, uh, come at music with the right spirit, in my opinion, anyhow, you know, that they, they, they look at playing their instrument sort of through the conduit of their heart as opposed to, as to, opposed to showing or demonstrating how proficient they are or how fast they can play or how clever they are. They, they, they're all well past needing to prove that. And, uh, and so to my mind to, you know, to take a room full of, of musicians who are working on that level and, and just dictate to them exactly what to play. You're just wasting a whole lot of talent and inspiration and, and promoting a, a, an atmosphere of, uh, of, um, subservience, you know, as opposed to participation and, and being invested in what they're doing. Very interesting. So the amount of what you envision and what the artist or the musicians envision 
that's varying all the time. Well, my vision, hopefully, is in concurrence with the artist because we've already, you know, we've discussed and, and gone over what we're trying to do with a particular song or a particular track. And I'm always, you know, I always consider myself to be working at the pleasure of the artist. And, and so, so even if I'm, even if I'm not specifically in agreement with the artist regarding how to approach a song, a difference of opinion or a disagreement for me the answer to that is is uh, a better solution as opposed to trying to meet force with force and trying to muscle them into doing it the way that I want to do it. That's a very dangerous way of approaching the job to me and not not a very smart one in my experience. And and because one, you may be wrong. <laughs> you know, the producer might be wrong. <laughs> and two, and two, the, the the artist is the one who has to go out and uh, and be this music, you know, and 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 inhabit it and play it every night, night after night, and and so uh, yeah. You, what I'm trying to do is is within the frame or the vision that the artist and I have of the music is is take advantage, take maximum advantage of of every buddy involved and their talents because I, I I'm a person who I wander through the world and I just collect people, you know, I collect people that I, that approach life and music and the world in a kindred way to myself, you know, and, and, and so I come across those people and generally people play similarly to how they are to a degree, you know, and, uh, and so you, you come across these people and, and I just kind of gather them up. And, and so when a particular project will come along, if it does involve a whole band of players, I'll think, okay, I'll look at the artist and their personality and what we're doing and look at the players that I know of and work with and, and I'll, think, okay, how do, how do I cast this in a way that where all of these factors are going to work together to form something that is going to be a, a beautiful machine that kind of takes us all pat, even past the best thing that I can imagine. And so, and sometimes that involves trying someone that I haven't worked with. And then I have to kind of do a little bit of investigation and see if I know they're playing, you know, like how, how is this person? How, what's their personality like? What, because all of these things affect the music. And in the end, you know, this kind of ninja aspect of producing, you know, this, this aspect of using all anything and everything to promote this kind of investment on the part of the, players as well as the artists that it you know that i know is is incredibly important and it reflects itself in the music and the record that you make do you ever have spirited disagreements with the artist yeah i do i i but as i was saying you know when i come across those those points i don't approach them as a power struggle, you know, I approach, I approach them as, as a ticket to a better solution. And, you know, so if I come to a certain juncture and, and we just don't see things the same way, I'll just sit with them and say, okay, what if we do this and such, which might be a, it might be a third tangential solution to, to the dilemma that we find ourselves in. And, you know, that usually works. Now, here and there, I'll come across someone that I work with. In fact, I just recently did where the way that they have worked and the, their 
conditioning and how they function musically and um, as a as an artist, how they function dictates a different way of getting at things. And and in that case, I have to I have to kind of put myself in their head and find a way to work that is going to get to where we want to go or as close as we can to where we want to go. We both want to go with a method that is going to be viable for them. I don't know if that's clear or not, but it's, it's, it's a strange thing in the specific instance that I'm referring to this recent thing that happened. I was working with an artist who is pretty young, um, 20, I think 24 years old, and he grew up in the Pro Tools era where, you know, young people who are music obsessive generally have a Pro Tools rig on their laptop in their bedroom, even before they leave home, and starting to write songs and arrange songs and figure out how they like to design music and and this particular artist is incredibly talented and has extraordinary ears and but they have developed in an air in a way because of these particulars they've developed in a way where in order to work on music they need it they need they need it the environment the the mix and the and the way that it sounds to be really pretty much perfectly structured. So in other words, like as you're beginning work on a song, just, and maybe you're just one day in with this particular artist, there's, there was just endless tweaking and kind of manipulating of the mix and uh, trying different placement, different relationships level wise. And, and that's diametrically opposite to the normal way of working for me or for most people, for most people, you get a mix going that you can, where you can discern that you, things are working, everything's working and the structure is sound. And then you proceed to do more work. Well, with, with this person, every increment that every thing that we would add to, to the structure of the, the track, we would have to, perfectly situate so i for a short time i tried to explain to him that this was really not a a time effective way of working and then i discerned that there was no way i was going to change him because he was that was how that was how he was structured (laughs) you know Hmm. and so so i had to just accept that and say okay i'm gonna i'm gonna press a couple of buttons in my own head and, and just work that way and think like he does. And so that's what I had to do. And it wasn't, wasn't an easy project, but we just made our way through it. And, um, and I think it's a gorgeous record and it's worth, it's, it will be worth all of the, all of the difficulty in it, but it was, um, it was quite a difficult process. Interesting. Who would you say taught you the most about producing? Well, because of my the path that has led me towards doing this job of of being a musician and working with a lot of producers, great producers, some great producers and some horrible producers. <laughs> you know, I've learned from everybody that I've worked with different things, what not to do or what to do. And, and I, I would say probably if I were to pick out one person, it would have to be Joni because, uh, we worked together for what it was it about, uh, 14 years. And, and that was during a time when I was really just cutting my teeth as a producer and making a lot of mistakes and she, when I'd make mistakes, she would let me know it. That's for sure. You know, she, and we were, of course, uh, married and, you know, together as a domestically as a, 
couple. And, and so it, it wasn't always a di- <laughs> an easy process, but, but I certainly learned a tremendous amount about every facet of the job by doing it with her about what to do and be conscious of and what not to do and when not to do it and why, why one would do different things. And, 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 um, and so that, I think that that probably informed everything else that I had learned and learned after, after that as well. Where did your jazz fascination begin? I started playing guitar very early at about age six or so and really started playing music and trying to write songs and uh, because of the Beatles. I think that when I first heard the Beatles, I thought, my God, you can do that with a song. You can, you can, you can broach these subjects. You can, you can say things with that kind of elegance and, and at the same time with the song being visceral and just the, the blend of things that they were up to musically and, and songwriting wise just turned my head inside out even at that early age. And, and so then I started playing guitar and started learning, you know, studying with different teachers. And then after not so many years, I switched to bass and most of the music that I was initially playing and this, we're talking about sort of sixth, seventh grade or so. Most of it was rock oriented stuff or, or pop or rock stuff. And, and fairly early on in my evolution as a bass player, I discerned that if I was going to try and challenge myself technically on the instrument, that I really needed to look towards jazz. And so, you know, through, all through my musical evolution, I've always sought out challenges and, and tried to, you know, I, I tend to be somewhat of a restless person in regard to making things. And, and so I was studying with some good teachers and, short time after that i thought wow maybe i'll i'll try playing upright bass and found a good teacher for that and and then uh started taking lessons that were directed towards learning how to play jazz and and then got inspired to to uh play in community orchestras and such and so started studying with a a guy in the LA Philharmonic and and so but once I discovered jazz in this kind of search for challenges related to playing bass, it just sucked me up. And, and I was a, I was a lost man. You know, I just, I just thought that the sky had opened up. As I was mentioning in the, at the top of the interview, there's just been some very, very iconic artists that you've recorded with. Have you ever found yourself in awe, serious, you know, like you were starstruck with someone that you were working with? I don't know that I would say, I don't know that I would uh, put it that way per se. I've been starstruck before, but not in those situations. I, I During a period where I was living up in Malibu, from time to time, I'd go to the local coffee shop and I'd see people like Rod Steiger or Paul Newman, you know, these kind of people. And, and I would genuinely be starstruck. When I met Rod Steiger, I was starstruck or Paul Newman. With the people that I've worked with musically, it, it manif- my, that feeling that I get would manifest at it it would manifest as as more of a amazement in the flow of what we're doing amazement at talent and 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 i guess you would characterize it as joy you know glee 
and I've had those kind of feelings all over the place with all kinds of people that I've worked with. It's just everyone from, I remember going into the studio uh, when I played on some things for Peter Gabriel on his so record and, and listening to a rough mix of, uh, of one of the songs that I played on and just weeping. It was so beautiful. And so, so hit me so close to the bone and, and just, and so, you know, my feeling at that juncture was just one of, Oh my God, you know, this is just sublime and coupled with, Oh, I can't wait to work on this. You know, I, I have three different approaches to try working on this track with you. And so those kind of things happen to me all the time when I work with artists. And by the way, this kind of uh, is somewhat directed to one of your previous questions, but the other group of people that I learn from all the time, and this is not meant to be said in, in the sense of a homily or some sort of a saccharine kind of <laughs> nicety, but it, it, it are the artists that I work with. Those are the people that I will learn the most from. And because, because I, I'm always, I'm so thirsty for, for finding different ways to approach music. And it's sort of an idyllic kind of thing to work with great, greatly talented artists for me. And, and they, they make me, they provoke me to rethink everything about the way that I do things or specific parts of what the way I do things that's incredibly catalytic to me just the process of of trying to do my job well well on that note learning from artists in doing research for this interview something that I noticed is you have worked with a tremendous number of artists that wouldn't necessarily be known in the United States, but they would be known in their respective country. Mm -hmm. What would you say that the experience of working with people like Eddie Mitchell or Thomas Dibdahl from Norway, there's a lot of these artists that you've worked with from other countries. What has that experience brought you? Well, you know, it's funny. I, the fact that I work with artists from all these different places has never been something that I directed myself towards or, or where I said, okay, I want to find artists from different places on the planet, stimulate me or something. But I am, I've always been an omnivore as a musician and as a, as a lover of music. And that, dates all the way back to my childhood. I, my parents had a really good record collection. They had all kinds of music, Broadway musicals, jazz. They had Sinatra, Nat King Cole, Ella, Connie Francis. They, I mean, everything you can think of. They, they had, they were omnivores as well. And so I've always been very, a very curious person musically. So in our, world and and um i guess this has been the case for quite some time musically but now more than ever you have access to music from everywhere and artists who live across the planet and and i've i've always approached my choices in my in relation to my career really with kind of a attitude of going where the wind is blowing me sort of in as far as if something crosses my path that is compelling to me and makes me excited and curious, then I'll hop on a plane and go somewhere and start researching the hell out of what I'm going to be doing and formulating ideas. And it's a very catalytic thing to me. So for instance, when, uh, when I was approached about working with Eddie Mitchell, uh, 
I started researching what he had done and who he was and and his whole history and 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 it, it was fascinating to me his whole history of coming up and being sort of part of this little rat pack with Serge Gainsbourg and and uh, Johnny Halliday and and uh, them kind of you know running roughshod over Paris and just you know this kind of rock and roller aspect of him but then he was always he was also a fanatical fan of southern soul music and came over without even being able to speak english to record and in memphis and and you know all these you know the complexity and and uh wonderful strangeness of these different talents is exciting to me and they they come across my path in all different ways i mean thomas dibdahl the way that i found out about him was that a, a friend of mine who is a very savvy music connoisseur has very good taste he sent me one track he sent me an mp3 of thomas and it just knocked me out and i but at the time i was busy on some different things. And I, I thought to myself, I don't know how this is going to tie into my life, but it is going to tie into my life. So, it, so I, I kept this track on my desktop, on my laptop and year and letter, I think about two years went by or three years, even the circumstances came about where I was offered the opportunity of starting my own imprint through universal records. And, and so once all that came together, then I thought, wow, okay, this is great. I've got my home base, my, this little place that I can do my stuff at. And, uh, now what am I going to do? And then I looked on my computer and I thought that track, that's, that's what I'm going to do. And so I started researching what was going on with Thomas and turned out he had just extricated himself from a bad record deal. And before I knew it, I was on a plane to uh, to Oslo to hear to hear him play a gig, and um, that was the beginning of that relationship. And the same same thing, even more mystical, kind of uh, happened in relation to Anna Mora, the, the great Fado singer. In that, I just had you know I was listening to different things, and I got interested in Fado, and I started thinking about it, listening to it, reading about it. And, and I heard her voice and I thought, I want to work with that woman. I want to do something with her. And sort of miraculously, my, my manager got a phone call from her manager. So the manager just calls you. Yeah. Out of the blue, he, the, her manager called my manager asking about whether we could do something together. And now, you know, I'm, I tend to be a pretty skeptical person when it comes to uh, telepathic communication and these, <laughs> these kind of ideas, but that was pretty wild that that happened. And, and I had been thinking for about a week or two, wow, I want to work with this woman. And then all this, you know, bam, the door opens and uh, it's one of the great things about the job that I do. I mean, during this time, there's a lot of things that aren't great about the job <laughs> that have nothing to do with art, but, but one of the best things about the job is that things can come out of nowhere. Just the phone rings and somebody wants you to work with this artist or that artist or do a, a new interpretation of this song or for a TV show or, you know, there's, it's sort of as a, it really has this roulette like kind of randomness, seeming, seemingly random kind of quality to it. It was really, really interesting to listen to a lot of these recordings that you were just talking about with some of these international artists. I enjoyed it. Oh, good. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I, it really is a, it's a stimul, you know, it's a, it's a ticket to growth for me too. Uh, when I started, you know, when I went to 
Portugal to do pre-production for this, the first of the records with Anna, I discovered that there's all these different musics that have evolved in such a small country. And, and I started educating myself and my God, it was just that kind of quality to it of, of, of happen, having a portal open into a culture and you can, the ability to go inside that culture and mine it and crawl around and see what makes people make the music they make there is, uh, it's incredible. And it keeps it, it and it really keeps my uh, sensibility fresh and, and evolving. You were mentioning a moment ago about how your parents, like yourself, were omnivorous music consumers. You mentioned, uh, you know, the different artists, everyone from Connie Francis to, you know, all different kinds of things. From your ears, not just of an album that you produced, what would you say, just give us an example of a record that you think is just a great production? Oh, God, there are so many. I mean, I, you know, my mind always immediately goes to the Beatles when I think of greatness of every facet, every facet of making a record. And even in the context of just the Beatles from record to record, how they express themselves and how they put together these records, you know, it, it really was a, that was really a instance where you had four talents that were so high powered and on fire that, that those four talents plus, I guess it really was five talents if you char count George Martin and then even six talents if you t count Billy Preston when he entered the picture made a genius, made a genius and the work that they did was so inspired and so prescient and focused and great in so many ways. That's, I was just thinking about the Beatles because of this white album reconstitution that just came out, which I'm going to get, I haven't gotten it yet, but, but I'm, you know, I'm a pretty fanatical Beatles fan and, um, and, what they did is, uh, you know, you could really devote years and years <laughs> of just crawling over those records microscopically to, and seeing every which way that good music can be made and metaphorically good decisions and good structure and sound ideas and, and irrationally inspired structure and uh, you know everything else i uh, you know i I'd, I'd say that's the first example that comes to mind but but there's so many there's so many instances of of um great production that i could listen it's, it's kind of hard for me even to select <laughs> but uh, you know i'm I, i'm one of those people you know i i think that uh in the context of musicians and producers and even record company people, there are those people who enjoy music and enjoy being a part of the world of music. And then there are the people that basically live for music. And I've been a part of that group sort of ever since I can remember. And I, I don't know, you know, it's, I don't know whether it's genetic I th I'm starting to think maybe it's a genetic, <laughs> genetically communicated thing because my son, who is 10, definitely is, has got the same, the same quality. He's, it's just happened in the last couple of years. And, and, and I see this, this same kind of thing where it's just music is the driving wheel. I, I have no idea whether he'll be a musician or not, but, but he lives for music. It was just a couple of days ago that I saw, for the first time, Bob Dylan in concert. Oh, yeah. It was quite an experience. But um, 
I went back and I listened to that Down in the Groove album. Oh, yeah. And I'm hoping you can just tell us uh, uh, maybe one of your recollections of working in the studio with Bob Dylan. Well, the thing that I did with him was was very – it was a song that was an old cowboy song called Rank Stranger, and that is a great song, but – and certainly the lyric is one that might have come out of him, which is probably why he wanted to record it. But uh, it was very interesting. I mean, when we when we put down the basic track, you know, when we put down the basics for that song, he wouldn't even, uh, you know, we, we got all kind of set up and then he wouldn't let the engineer even finish getting set up uh, as far as his um, he had a vocal mic set up and he wanted to start playing it and then the engineer said well wait a second I, I got to get a mic set up on your guitar and he said no I want to I want to I play it now and so he started playing the song and <laughs> I guess it's kind of predictable the the way the story ends is that is that we played through it and he said that's it and the engineer was horrified of course because he said i but i haven't but i didn't have a mic on your guitar and he said well would it have bothered elvis <laughs> interesting <laughs> so, so they ended up they ended up just compressing the vocal mic enough so that they could get enough guitar through through the through uh through that one uh, mic but it was great. I mean, I you know, he's a fascinating character, and and I'm such a huge uh, fan in so many ways, and of what he does, and that it was a thrill, and and um, he just kind of let me do what I wanted to do, and uh, I did some overdubs, and and uh, that was it. That was the you know, and we you know we talked a little bit about. I think about painting and just kind of this and that. And, uh, but it was, it was quite a thrill. I'm mean, just gave me this new box set of, uh, the complete blood on the tracks stuff, you know, all the alternate takes and stuff. So I'm, I'm poised to start diving into that and, and, uh, really excited about listening to that stuff. I was listening to the Stereophonic podcast, the interview that you Mm -hmm. did there, and um, something that you said really struck me. You said that in some ways your life is about movies, music, and books. Mm -hmm. So just the first thing that pops into your mind, great film that you've seen, maybe your favorite, what would it be? To Kill a Mockingbird. Good choice. How about book? Oh, book. Oh, gee, there's so many. Let me think. Um, Emperor of the Air, a collection of stories by Ethan Kanan. I thought you were going to say To Kill a Mockingbird again. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, you know, I love that book, but but the movie of that, ah, I, I don't think I've ever seen any case of a better adaptation of a book into a movie oh yeah just i've seen it i've seen it probably a hundred times now and i you know i watch it with my son now and uh, it's just sublime it's it's a piece of sublime art so that that's that's really uh not a tough one but book wise you know i you know, I'm also such an omnivore with regard to books. I go on kind of tears where I, I'll just read short stories for a period of time. And so I'll just go from writer to writer reading short stories and then I'll read novels. And God, there's so many books that I love and so many, actually so many great books that I haven't read that, that I still need to read. Um, but, uh, but, Ethan Kanan is a very interesting case because he 
I was just talking, I guess he's in my mind because uh, I was just talking about him the other day and as a person who he wrote that collection of stories while he was in medical school and he, uh, and he went on to be finished medical school. But by the time he finished medical school, that book had won all sorts of prizes. So he discovered that he wasn't going to be a doctor. <laughs> all right. Probably the hardest one. Favorite album? Uh, well, yeah, that is hard. I'd probably have to go back and like sort of uh, my rosebud choice, if, you, if you're speaking Citizen Kane metaphor, would be Rubber Soul. Another thing you said in the Stereophonic podcast, you said that for you, making records has been therapeutic, kind of like a, a self-discovery. Mm -hmm. What revelation have you had in the process of making an album that maybe you could share with us? Oh, uh, every kind, <laughs> every kind you can think of. Um, mm, my, it seems like my whole life has been lived in the context of making albums or yeah, the biggest part of it. I mean, I, I became friends with and kind of soulmates with my ex-wife in the context of making an album. You know, when we, when we met, it was in the context of me playing on one of her records and it's been the chronological bookmark that probably more than anything that I can work with, I can search for periods in my life via records that I was working on. So making records serves as the, as the chapter dividers of my life to a large degree. So that's one thing. Um, I would say the deepest relationships friendship wise too have come to a certain degree via making records. I made a record with Walter Becker where we wrote the songs together and I produced it and he was the artist and, and Walter really, I have to say probably was my best friend He's the dearest friend that I can think of. And so it was, a uh, again, making a record was the vehicle that, that illuminated our friendship for a couple of years. And, and the best times, the, the, the most, uh, joy, the most laughter, all of these things I would, I would refer back to refer back to records. I think that um, in the context of what I said regarding it being therapy to make records, I guess that I just feel, I just feel like myself when I'm making records. It's the thing that I'm, I'm you know, I often kind of think about it perhaps in a, in a negative sense where I see people who have these multifaceted lives where they, you know, they're gourmet cooks and they're fanatical football fans and, uh, and they know every, uh, you know, joke that George Carlin ever told or something. And, it, you know, they have these kind of diverse fields of, of expertise and interests. And I, I guess I have that too, to some degree, but it seems to me when I, in, in, in assessing my self and my life that I was really just put on the planet here to do this, you know, to make, to make these things, you know? <laughs> so I get, I guess it's, it's fairly therapeutic to do, to be doing the one thing that you feel like you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for giving so generously of your time. Oh, it was a pleasure. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I'm glad we could finally put it together. <laughs> well, 
the listeners out there, if they want more information, it's LarryKleinMusic.com. LarryKleinMusic.com. I always like to give the guest the microphone at the end. You can go anywhere you want. What would you say to anyone who's tuned in? I would say the most important thing that I could say is that the most important way that you can change the world is by how you treat the people who you are close to, whether it's your family or the people that you work with or your friends. So in a time that is for me anyhow, a quite a dark period in the, in um, not only the history of the country or, but also the his world history even that rather than, or in addition to activism in regard to whatever your passion is politically, the way that you really can change the world is by being kind and generous and gracious and open to the people that you are closest up on. Wow. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Okay, Paul. All right. Have a good one. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. If you enjoy these interviews, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast. You can help us by listening on the free Radio Public app. The show can also be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or Overcast. For more information, visit thepaulleslie.com or follow on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, all at The Paul Leslie. The Paul Leslie Hour theme song is performed and composed by Jeff Pike. Outro music is performed and composed by John Goodwin. See you next time on The Paul Leslie Hour.